the big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The Big Silence. Hello and welcome to the Big Silence podcast. I am your host, Karina Dawn. I'm a mental health advocate, wellness entrepreneur, and co-founder of the leading women's fitness community, Tone It Up. I'm also a New York Times bestselling author and founder of the nonprofit, The Big Silence Foundation. I'm also a wife, daughter, friend, and yes, palm mom of five. And just like you, I'm a work in progress. I have experienced profound grief and trauma and then found deep joy in life. And now I'm here to share my story, be a safe space for you to share yours. And we're having in-depth conversations with psychologists, doctors, spiritual leaders, friends, and others who have been impacted directly or indirectly by a mental health condition. No more embarrassment, no more shame, no holding back, only healing. Let's go! Mental health is my wealth, the stress up on the shelf. Nobody can love me the way I love myself. Seek and ye shall find the truth and the light. I'm living my purpose, so I sleep good at night. No more depression or spiritual recession. And every day that I wake up, it's a blessing. So breathe in, breathe out. Everybody in the house know what I'm talking about. The big silence, the big silence. Hello, hello. It's Karina Dawn, and welcome to the Big Silence podcast. I am really excited for today's guest. Oh, and you might have already noticed that um, my intro sidekick, Bobby, is not here. But have no fear. He's in this podcast too. So today's guest is Monica Berg. She's an international speaker, spiritual thought leader, and the author of Fear is Not an Option and Rethink Love and the host of the Spiritually Hungry podcast. And I'm really excited about this conversation. We talk about self-parenting, tips for maximizing your potential, mental illness and how it has run in both of our families and some fears around that or releasing those fears. And her book, Rethink Love. We had Bobby sit down with us for this and I'm really, really excited. We get very deep, vulnerable Bobby shares his perspective in marriage and mine. And we kind of have like this mini therapy session with Monica. And um, I talked to Monica afterwards and I think we're going to use her as our new therapist. And I think normalizing that all relationships are not perfect and that's okay. As long as you're always willing to do the work. So it's a really good conversation. Got a little uncomfortable, but we're open to share anything with you. Also, she has a new children's book coming out. She has a great story about her children that she shares in the podcast. Her new book is The Gift of Being Different. I can't wait for that to come out. And also, speaking of books, don't forget the Big Silence book. You can buy it anywhere books are sold, especially Amazon.com, and you can have it super quick. And then, uh, yeah, share this podcast with anyone that you feel needs to hear any part of it. We go over a lot of different topics So enjoy and see you on the flip. All right. Welcome, Monica Berg. We were just, I always like to chat with everyone prior to actually recording. A lot of guests I already know or those I'm just meeting. And we just got off a conversation where I think we could have kept talking about it (laughs) before hitting record. And the discussion around the big silence and mental health and mental illness and family. So thank you, Monica, for already being so open. Thank you for having me and thank you for sharing. And I'm super inspired by what you do because, you know, in our world and in our society and culture, we have so much emphasis on physicality, you know, how anti-aging, being healthy, how you look quality of life, but there hasn't been until I think more recently, the importance of mental health and mental care and how you maintain or achieve mental well-being because everything really is, you know, we don't, I think we haven't fully appreciated our brains and our minds and our abilities as much as we do now, at least. And there's so much more to go in that way. 
Yeah, I agree. It was only even I remember when I started toning up and talking to Katrina, like saying, I can never talk about my past and what it is because the the stigma was so there. And it's so beautiful that we can openly talk about this. And even just meeting you and what you told me, you know, I respect any privacy, you know, but. Um, no, I'm an open book. I write okay. about all of my experiences. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so you have family members who have schizophrenia and mm-hmm. mental illness. And then that's probably because one of my questions for you was how did you get where you are today? Was it because growing up with something that was so different that you used the word you thought it was contagious? Well, I think that in my house, I always felt a bit different myself. I felt kind of like, you know, why am I here? And not in the house, but like, why am I in this world? What is our purpose? And I looked around at my elders and everybody seemed to be unhappy or suffering or in lack. And, you know, I'll be happy when. And I just thought, you know, I don't really get this whole thing. Like, what's what's our reason? And then, of course, you do see things that are cause for pain. But then again, what do you do with the pain? So for example, when my uncle became schizophrenic, I was seven. uh, And we had just moved from Louisiana to Beverly Hills. And everything was so new and different, but not in a great way. And there was so much shame around his illness. You know, I think, I think with fear comes a lot of, um, of shame. People want to hide the places that they are afraid of the most. They want to run from it. They don't want to accept it because, you know, on some level, when we see things that are hard or things that appear to be unfair or ugly, we want to look away because we don't want that to be our reality. Right. And I think a lot of it just comes because we don't talk about these things. When I finally wrote about my uncle in my first book, Fears on an Option, um, my other uncle was like, why didn't she say his name? What if they think it's me? And I'm thinking like, everybody knows that you're not schizophrenic. <laughs> you know, it's just this whole thing of like, we want to be accepted. We want to be normal. And I think that I came to the understanding fairly at a young age that there is no such thing as normal, that we are all different. We are all meant to be different. We just, our purpose in this world is to really find out what our true gift is and what we're supposed to bring into the world. And it's unique for every single person. Yeah, I love that. And I agree. And I I kind of do, I do the work now that I do because we need to have a voice. We need to let everyone know that nothing, it's a hard world out there, but we have the tools. And if we talk about it more, we can live our best life. And that's why I love having these conversations. And when you talk about being different, you have your new book coming out. It's a children's book. So what made you switch to a children's book and, you know, having the title of The Gift of Being Different? Well, I think we're all storytellers, really, by nature. And I I am inspired by all things in life, mm-hmm. if, even if they're bad or good or whatever it is. And my kids have really been a source of inspiration for me throughout my whole life. And I have four kids. Um, my second child was born with Down syndrome. I found out... Mm-hmm a few hours after he was born. So for me, it was just the shock that that changed my whole life. Even though I had been on a spiritual road and a path since I was 17, it was really giving birth to him that changed me so fundamentally. And interestingly enough, I remember when he was born, I thought of all the things, why does it have to be his mind? Because at that time, I still had a fear of schizophrenia. Mm-hmm. And that's all. And I was just like, oh my God, I'm reliving this on some level again. And of course that wasn't true, but in my naive way at the time. That's how I perceived it. But then I, we can talk about that too, but I shifted that into seeing it as a great blessing. My fourth child has dyslexia and um, she is the co-author of this book with me. Mm -hmm. And she is also the narrator. We've written 10 books. This will be the first one we're releasing. And um, I wanted to reframe what our differences really are, right? The things that we feel most ashamed about the things that we try to hide about ourselves because they are different from other people is really our uniqueness. It's our superpower. And I remember when she got, she got diagnosed a year ago. And at that time we were going through a really hard time. My mother-in-law was passing away and Abigail has my daughter's name and she got diagnosed. And I was thinking about how, how do I want to tell her this? Because I knew however I framed it for, it would be more her experience around it. 
So she beat me to it and she came to me in the middle of, of this crazy time. I'm literally like getting out of the shower and I'm rushing to dinner and she's brushing her teeth and she's like, mommy, do I need all this extra help because I'm stupid? And I mm. thought, okay, I don't care. I have nowhere to be right now. I stopped everything. And I, and I said, let's talk about this. So basically the book is her journey and her understanding. And I think the other powerful message is that she became an author before she could really read or write. And you just have to have an idea and you have to have a belief in yourself that you have the ability to be an agent of change for yourself and for others. I love that because before we came on to record, we were talking about how why I do what I do is because the resources weren't there and we weren't talking about it when I was a young girl, the same as your daughter. And to just have those open conversations, you must be so proud as a mom and she's very lucky to have someone who openly talks about it. And I can't wait. I, I don't have kids. I have five Pomeranians. Oh but, my God. <laughs> but um, I will definitely be getting that. I um, When she went to a new school, that was it's a, it's a great school that specializes for children who have dyslexia. But she walked in that first week and there's a sign on the wall that says other, you know, notable people who have your disability. And, and it had famous people like Albert Einstein. I mean, it was a long list, right? And she said, mommy, we have to go to the head of school because this is not a disability. It's a superpower and they need to know that. And I was like, yes. So it's really, it's very powerful. And I think, you know, if we can give this to our children, because it took me most of my life to create that space for myself, right? To be able to reframe things that seemed like something you definitely don't want, or that could be a lifelong challenge into a great gift and opportunity. So if children can get this in their heads early on, I think we're all going to live in a better world. I agree. Wow. That is amazing. And then, so going back to, I wanted to go back to the schizophrenia running in your family, just because I'm so interested in that, because I rarely talk to those Mm -hmm. who have that running in their family and the fear. Did you have a fear about that? Oh, I was terrified. I think that was the first time I ever felt fear so completely and viscerally. I think a lot of it, and that's why intentionally I parented my children very differently. So again, we weren't living in in Beverly Hills then. So I think that there were obviously, it wasn't overnight, but because I didn't have access to him, I mean, I had a few scary memories where, you know, he he almost drowned me, but then he was playing. I mean, I was always very... I felt scared around him, but this time he was just, he was violent and he was having an outburst in front of my grandparents. And I could see the sadness and shame on their faces. We're Middle Eastern. So there's a lot of pride in the family. And before I knew it, we're all, and I don't know why there's no blame, but nobody said, you know, let's go in the other room or took me to a different place. You know, we were all just sitting there around the table, like 10 of us. And he walked in and he exposed himself while he was screaming and this, that, and the next thing I remember just being terrified. And the next thing, my mom's hands were over my eyes. And I just remember, and we never discussed it, right? Mm. No, no mm. answers, no what. So I thought, yes, it's contagious. Um, and I went around for maybe 10, 15, 20 years holding my breath around anybody who seemed to be schizophrenic or somebody homeless on the street who was speaking to themselves. I'd be in the middle of a 20 mile run and I would hold my breath as I passed them as I didn't want to catch it. And I know that sounds illogical and it is, but that was a fear I developed and that was my way of not catching it. That's how I coped with that, right? At that age. Wow. That's so interesting because I've never heard like someone saying, I think it's contagious. I mean, obviously I would think for myself, I thought it was contagious through my genetics and I lived in that fear. But what do you think was put in your mind by someone well, that said, this is contagious? What I came to understand is the fear that everybody has in common is the fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. And I obviously at age seven didn't have access to that awareness. And again, we didn't discuss it. And to your point, even if we had pre-genetic disposition, wouldn't have made me feel any better, right? Yeah. So I think that it's what I walked away with is that you know things can change overnight like this and that mm-hmm. there is no safety or security in life. One day somebody's normal, the next day they're not. And so I really had to figure that out on my own, that that's absolutely not true. Um, that everything is changeable, but you also have great influence on the things that you can change or not. And why worry or fear about something that may or may never happen? So I just had to, for me, it made me live a very present, focused, purposeful life early on. Yeah. So 
listening to that, because I know there's, especially in the past few years, a lot of society is living under a lot of fear. What would your best advice be to come out of that fear? Besides reading your book, fear is not an option. <laughs> well, and it's, it's a, I mean, I don't want to toot my own horn. It's a great yeah. book. It's semi-autobiographical. So the first part is my journey through fear. But we also, you know, I break down the anatomy of fear and that there's three different types of fear. And then there's a ton of tools at the end of it, how to really overcome fear. The point is we will always have fear in life. You know, it's part of human existence. It's funny. I was giving a lecture to a group of uh, teens and Abigail, my youngest was with me and she listened. And I love that she's already like participating in these workshops. And we were talking about fear and people were naming their fears. And she whispered to me, she said, well, mommy, would people have fear if they never knew fear existed? Which I thought was such mm, a profound question. Whoa. Exactly. <laughs> and I, <laughs> so I think there is a time for healthy fear. Sure. But most of our fears are in the realm of illogical fear. And that fear keeps us paralyzed and from really living the lives that we want to. It keeps us from pursuing our dreams, for saying what we want, for expressing ourselves. So in that way, we can absolutely remove fear. So first is, you know, the things that we fear usually are things that never happen. It's the ones that we never thought of that present themselves. And if you can go around life really asking yourself this one question, what would I do if fear was not an option? And you answer that and then you go do that thing. You're going to live a very present life because if you're living in the realm of fear, you're living based on things in the past that happened to you that still have a hold over you or worrying about things that may or may not happen in the future. So you're not really living your life. And I think it just comes down to, you know, do you want to be happy? I think part of the issue, quite honestly, is that people don't think they're worthy of a good life or they don't necessarily think it's possible for them. I mean, we're complicated. A lot of it, you know, we're some of everything that has happened to us or the things that we've seen. And it's our choice to really direct that and choose something else. So how do we, how do we choose those listening or like, I'm living in this state of fear, which I get it because we are raised that way. Um, I come from um, a family who I'm second generation my grandmother fled from, uh, and my grandfather, and she, my grandmother was pregnant with my dad fleeing from the Ukraine back in the 50s and stayed in camps and came to America. And I feel like that fear is even in my dad. And it's like generational, like how we teach each other. And how do we overcome that fear? Well, it's interesting because there's something called epigenetics. So you, mm -hmm. in fact, feel the things that your parents felt. It's, mm -hmm. It is It is actually in your DNA. Um, I think it just comes down to, and again, it's not going to be that I'm going to say something so profound. I think it's more about the practice of it mm -hmm. and being really disciplined. I think it's about choosing the life that you want. You can live a life where fear is in the driver's seat and that it stops you from being curious, from exploring, from taking risks because what will happen. But by the way, if that's where you live your life, then also you're not going to experience much joy because we are curious by nature. We are meant to seek. We are meant to learn. We're meant to grow. So you have to be able to curb your fear as much as, you know, how much energy are you giving into the fear? How much are you listening to it? How much do you let it stop you? And really take a toll of that and decide that today I'm not, I'm going to do one thing that scares me. I'm going to do one thing in the direction of what inspires me. And that's how you really train yourself to live on different terms. It's not going to be like, oh, I'm not going to be afraid anymore. Or I'm going to fight this fear because fighting something actually takes a lot of energy also. It's about choosing something else. If you think about fear in this way, and, and I, you know, we go to great lengths to protect the things that are important to us, right? We lock our, our houses, we set an alarm, we put our bikes on a rack. We put our jewelry in a safe, our money in the bank. I mean, we go to great lengths to protect these things. But when it comes to fear, we allow it to steal our greatest asset. And what do you think that is, if I were to ask you? Our greatest asset? Freedom, joy, love. All important. But our number one thing is our potential. Because mm. we come into the world, like if you have a seed, right? It's not going to grow into anything unless you water it and you plant it and you add soil. And that seed can become an oak tree. 
It's the same thing with our soul. If you allow fear to be in the driver's seat, then fear is all-consuming. It's not being nurtured. It's not being fed. It's not being grown. And so the potential of what you could be, right? A seed, Mm -hmm. you never know that it's going to actually become an oak tree. We also don't know who we could become. And as long as fear is there and we give it so much energy, we're never going to be and and grow into what we were meant to become. I love that. I'm going to, so I have, I do a meditations most mornings. It's part of my practice. And I always think of words and those are the words I just shared. And I think I'm going to add potential to that. Like, yeah, I think it's important. I think it's just as important as love and joy. It's potential. And a lot of people don't see the potential in themselves because of the fear. Like, And we all have the same potential. But what's interesting in your list is love, kindness, all of those words, they have the potential to grow into more love and more kindness. And that's why potential is so expansive. It's something that you're never, you've never arrived, right? It's mm-hmm. always as soon as you have an understanding or you're living in a higher level of integrity, there's always another place to go. And that's why things like fear and anger and sadness and hatred they kind of just block all of those things. But if you if you really just focus, focus on what you want instead of what you don't want. And that's that's all that shift is really about. I love that. So I want to know what brings you joy, what scares you, and what inspires you. The possibility of each day brings me joy. And I mean that in the most you know powerful way. Like I never know what any day is going to look like, but I know it's going to be purposeful because that's my intention. Uh, what scares me? not doing what I came to this world to do, like not having enough time, running out of days. And I lost my father last year too. So I tend to talk about death a lot more than I used to lately because it was mm-hmm. my mother-in-law who was my mentor and then a year later, my father. And um, what was your last question? What, uh, inspires? what inspires you? Um, nature, for sure. Oh, I love, I love nature. What about nature? Well, we were just in Scotland. And first of all, for any of your listeners who have not gone, I mean, it was on my bucket list. It is it is picturesque. It's like what you see in the pictures, but it's even better than the pictures. I mean, yeah. we were driving to, we were in Edinburgh and then we went to the Highlands and I was driving and I had to keep pulling over on the side of the road because it was just majestic. Like, And everybody else in the car is like, wow. I'm like, I have to see this. And it's just, and the people are kind, like the air is clean. It's just on every level. It it kind of measured up. But also sometimes when I'm sitting, you know, I love living in New York because there's seasons. And sometimes if I'm looking out the window, I remember one day I was looking at a tree outside my window. And within one hour, the tree looked a hundred different ways because Mm -hmm. the wind came and then the sun moved and then it started to rain. And I was just so inspired by that. I think it really allows for us not to feel like we are the center of the universe. We're just very small when you compare it to nature. I know nature, it's like such a simple medicine is getting out in nature and we always talk about that now like everyone's like how do I take care of myself mentally it's like well move your body meditate and get out in nature and just observe it's so simple and beautiful um okay so you lost your father last year and you said you talk more about death lately and I get that because I do as well but I want to open up the conversation too because I've had many friends who have lost siblings or parents over the past year or two, and it's been really struggle. And there's these conversations of death that have come up a lot, and it can either make someone very uncomfortable to speak about, but I'd love to talk to you about it because I think it's such an important topic um, for me. I'm super comfortable talking about death now. I wasn't always. And by the way, it's one of those conversations like schizophrenia or diseases Mm -hmm that people don't want to talk away, talk about because it makes us think about our own mortality. And I get that, you know, again, it goes back to that, the things that fear us, we want to look away. We don't want to think about, but I think it's so necessary and it's so important to help people reframe death because it is part of life and you can't deny that, right? It doesn't mean you have to be in fear of death. It doesn't mean that you have to spend a lot of time thinking about it, but you have to come to terms of what that looks like and what that means. So for me, you know, and I, I have to say, one of my fears had been, you know, hospitals, death, taking care of people who are ill. Um, my father was in hospice for two, three weeks, was with them every day. And 
And with my with my mother-in-law also, she died in her home, but it was also hospice care in the home. We were there with her as well. And what I understand death to be is that, and this is my my personal, I believe in reincarnation. So I believe that the soul, and also in my studies of Kabbalah, that the soul is, you know, and we understand this, right? When when you have a baby, the baby becomes a toddler, becomes a teen, becomes an adult. We get older, we age, we understand the cycles of life as we are in the body. And as you go through those stages, also your soul changes, grows, develops. We act in ways that are with kindness. We act with ways that are selfish, depending on how you act is how you feel. And that all adds to your cycle of life. The way I see death is that it's another level of elevation for the soul. It just, in order for you to go to your next level of elevation, you need to shed the body. And for us that are still in our bodies, it's hard to understand that. And it's hard to connect to that. I feel my father's presence every time I am in nature. I feel that he drives with me when I go on this one road because he would love that. And I feel him and I have, you know, People I've lost come to me in dreams. And I think if you look at time, I'm going to get really deep here. I don't know mm-hmm. if this is what you were Oh, 100%. Go, go. When we consider time, I think that's also another illusion. You know, we give time a specific frame, you know, between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. I'll do this. I need to go to bed before 11 p.m. or 12. Like, what is time? So when I look back at the memories I've had with people who are no longer here, I can live it as if it's real in this moment because time is an illusion as well. So death is an illusion. Time is an illusion. And I think that when you understand that, first of all, the loss doesn't feel like a loss because they're still here in some way. The only difference is you can't really create new experiences with that person. But I think that can also be a motivator for change because if that, if we understand that because we're okay talking about death, we have a healthy understanding of it then you will make the most of the time that you are able to create new experiences with the people that you love. So for me, it's just a very, it's a very natural part of life actually. And it's there for us to not waste our lives, to not think that we have so many days. I mean, we have, you know, 4,000 weeks or whatever it is in, in a lifetime. I mean, if you look at it that way, yes, it sounds scary. It sounds morbid, but it's not, it's actually very inspiring if you understand that. Yeah. What is it with monks? They meditate, like they wake up and they think about death because we are all going to die. But then that comes back to the word that you mentioned earlier about potential. So there's that acceptance, but that's okay. So look at your pure potentiality during this lifetime and get inspired. And I mean, if you think about it, it's so naive and silly to not think about death because it's going to happen, right? So if we stop and say, wow, well, I'm going to make the most of what this is and I'm going to live my life and I'm going to be a kind and compassionate person and I'm going to help other people feel good and I'm going to make sure that I take the time to see the sunset or the sunrise or go and wake up in a different part of the world because I can and I'm able. I mean, that's what life is about. So death informs how we're supposed to live. Yeah. And I think coming to accept that yeah, it allows us to live. I've been having we won't stay on the conversation of death too long, much longer, but I literally have been having these conversations with a lot of people lately as we're getting older and our parents are passing away or tragic things that have happened to some of my best friends' siblings. Yeah, I think it's so important to not live in that fear. So before we started the recording this podcast, we had Bobby, my husband here, because I want to shift over to your book, Rethink Love. It came out in 2020, yeah? Yes, just right before the pandemic. Not great timing, but yes, like literally the month before. Yeah, but also great timing because during the pandemic, there was a lot of relationships that were going through a lot. And so um, I also ordered that and I'm going to read it. And I asked Bobby to be on the podcast and he said no, but then you convinced him to come on here and sit <laughs> down. So, Bobby. I think he secretly wanted to be on the he podcast. He secretly did. <laughs> he just needed a VIP invite. Uh, <laughs> here he is. Put some headphones on. Let's talk about this book and why you wrote it. You've been with your husband for 26 years, yeah? Or more? It'll be our 25th wedding anniversary in 
two weeks. Um, our um, wedding anniversary here, Bob, is Saturday. And oh, wow. Six, six years married, Ooh. 10 years together, I think. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. Can you hear yes. us both? All right, yes. Perfect. All right, I'm excited. I'm in the hot seat. Where are we seat. going? <laughs> so tell me about this book and why you titled it Rethink Love and, you know, why? So along with fear, the other thing that I noticed with people that I met, the biggest issue for them was their relationships. Either they wanted one or they wanted to get out of one. It can either be a source of our greatest joy or our greatest sorrow. And I started to find in the couples that I counsel, there were certain things, themes that came up again and again. And I realized that it doesn't, this doesn't have to be so difficult. I think that when it comes to relationships, unfortunately, people think that it's really hard to find the one. We put a lot of effort there. And then once we do, we think, okay, now I'm going to focus on my career or I'm going to focus on starting a family or I, you know, we checked that box. And in reality, relationships that work are the ones we work on and they require attention and care and nurturing and gentleness. So that I was really inspired to write that. In my book, it's a three-part book. The first is first part is me. It's the relationship you have with yourself. I think that's the relationship that most people never pay attention to. And it's very hard to be successful in a relationship unless you really have learned to love yourself. You know what you believe, you know what you think, and you're able to express that. And it's never too late. I mean, I have people who come to me in their 70s and they're still like, how do I learn to love myself? You know, mm-hmm. how do I learn to access my thoughts or my desires? The second part is me to we. It's how to maintain who you are while being in a relationship, how not to lose yourself in somebody else. Um, and then we is how to be successful in relationships. So um, I have a chapter called spiritual sparring. I think fighting is very necessary in a relationship. I think you just need to pick a style. Did you hear that? Um, <laughs> oh, I think I think we got that covered. <laughs> Uh, about appreciation, vulnerability. Yeah, and it really unpacks, I think, every facet of a relationship. Yeah, I liked the quote is, relationships can be our biggest source of joy and our biggest source of pain. But every relationship has its problems, but the ones that work are the ones we work on. Mm. And I think, Bobby, like we, we have disagreements. We don't typically scream too much at each other. I want to talk about by arguing styles. But also I talked to a lot of people like it's normal for someone to be in a relationship and not agree on anything. We are our own humans and we have our own beliefs and things that we stand by. But I think sometimes a partner may be like, well, this isn't working because we're fighting or we're not getting along right now. But in my opinion, and uh, you can say yours, Bobby, I think that's a normal process of having a disagreement. Yeah, I mean, I think disagreements are normal, but like, I wouldn't want to live just constantly disagreeing and not feeling settled. Like, we can choose to disagree and then walk away and be okay. But if it's turning into like argumentative disagreements, then I just wouldn't accept that as like the status quo. You know what I mean? It's not our status quo, but we're both very outspoken people. I think that we people come into a relationship with styles they've seen in their own home. You know, for instance, when I first got married, like I said, my family's Middle Eastern. They like to scream a lot. And my husband, uh, not his style at all. But, I, you know, mm. how did, what did I know? So when we started fighting, I'd be like, ah. And then he would get really quiet and shut down, which would then infuriate me. And then I'd get even angrier. And it was just ineffective. Um, science also comes into play here because when men get upset, generally to calm themselves, they need to shut off, right? They'll go watch something because that actually calms them. And for women, speaking about it right away calms us, right? So even just knowing that detail is helpful. But I think it's, and to your point, nobody wants a relationship where you're always fighting and it feels just intense all the time, Uh but I do worry about couples who never fight because you don't care about anything then. You know, I know this couple, my kids were friends with their children the same age and they came home one day, they're like, they're getting divorced. We never saw them fight ever. The kids are so confused. Like nobody had a clue, right? Because nobody cared enough in the relationship. So I think that it's just, you know, it shows that you care enough about something to have the conversation. It's finding a style that works for both of you. 
and finding the time to do that to come back. Because the biggest mistake I think couples make is that they don't repair an argument. And then once they have the next conversation, the previous one that wasn't repaired goes into the next one and then the next one. And before mm-hmm. you know it, there's no there's no resolve on any conversation that you've had. I feel like that's where I feel we are. Compounded resentment from a long time ago, for from my opinion. Did you know um, of where you're I stepping feel. into couples therapy? <laughs> I love this though. Yeah. By the way, I love your honesty because I think that, and we were speaking about this a little bit at the beginning. So many people, you know, on Instagram, it's like these picturesque relationships are meant to be better and better every year, and they can be, mm-hmm. but it requires constant attention and nurturing and having these honest conversations and being vulnerable with one another so you can affect change and that you really can feel like the relationship is working for you. I mean, it's silly to pretend, you know. It will never last that way. It will never work that way if we just keep biting our tongues. Yeah. And instead of putting energy where it needs to be. I think that's where I struggle with our relationship a lot. I think it's known between the two of us. You can tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's more known that I'm the one that has more of an issue with our relationship than you do. Like I feel like Karina's needs are met by our relationship, but Mine aren't. And when I've brought it up a long time ago, um, it kept getting put in the back due to other things that I would view as very important in our life and Karina's life. And I kept letting it go. And that's my fault, but it builds a ton of resentment. And so, like, you get to a point where it's like, I don't want to. I don't want that anymore or this or how it how it is and it's it's hard when like especially you have someone who has some sense of public figure and all of that like where is the um the time to talk about that even in our household we're busy and we're always doing things and multiple businesses and like you get limited to that time in the evening when you're tired and I felt that that's been pushed aside for a very long time um, and have been asking to like go into therapy again. And when we were in therapy briefly, I mean, maybe it was a year and a half, um, there was definitely a sense that I wanted to be there, probably more of actually the, the female version historically, and Karina didn't want to. And that hurt over time um, of just continually subsiding it and my resentment towards Karina building. One thing, um, and we spoke on this earlier, Monica, but I wanted you, who had never been in therapy before, to experience therapy on your own before we came together. Mm -hmm. Well, this is really interesting. Do you feel like you still haven't had a space to be able to work through the things that you desire? Yes. Our skill sets don't necessarily, we can't find that resolve with just the two of us. Like we really need that third party to kind of create that safe space. Um, Maybe call each one of us out when we're both being triggered and, and going into it. And so I don't feel like we've, we've gotten that yet. How do you feel about this? Do you feel that you want to create space for that? Me? Oh yeah. Yes. I I I love Bobby and I tell him all the time like I I'm happy in our relationship. Do we argue? Do we dispute? And he's a New Yorker from Long Island. So his communication skills can be a little abrupt sometimes. But um and you know, your dad is here in town staying at our house here and um, even we were just talking the other night at dinner about your household growing up and how you all communicate. And so I think what I'm hearing is something a little bit different. I think that it's interesting because you guys are six years married, right? Mm-hmm. At the seven year mark is usually where it becomes, um, this is jo- Dr. John Gottman's work. He did a lot in this area where at seven years, it becomes really clear the things that are not working And when they're not dealt with, it can create resentment or hostility and things like that. And those emotions are a little bit more toxic and they're harder to 
get rid of, but mm-hmm. they're not, it's not impossible. So mm-hmm. I think what I'm hearing right now, it's really important to, um, to put time and energy here. And we can, of course, be so busy doing and doing and doing, especially people like us who are really trying to do big things. Um, we can focus on the doing, but more importantly, it's in focus on the being. I often say that we should create our to-be list before our to-do list. So for instance, if to-be would be um, to be a very conscious partner or to be a very, whatever that is, a great husband or wife, then on your to-do list would be, you know, spend one hour a week in in therapy or with a third party discussing things or spend 10 minutes a day saying something in appreciation to one another and giving each other a hug, right? So I, I would say I would implement that right away because I think that's necessary. The other thing I'm hearing, and correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm hearing Bobby say is that he wants to feel seen and heard and he doesn't feel like he has the space or room to do that in your relationship. Um, is that right? I would say so. Yeah, for sure. Or feeling feeling like it's safe to say, hey, I don't feel good with this. You know, like not everything is going to always be amazing, but when I want to bring up things that aren't working, I don't feel any safety in in that conversation. Um, there's yeah. never never time for it, never wanting to. It's like I'm a nuisance for for wanting to address things that that I feel. And based on what? On on her on her response? Based or? on a reaction, yeah. Is that accurate? I would, I would say no, but <laughs> so this is what's interesting is it could be as simple as um you might think you're giving a response or giving off something that that you're not. And, and he might be hearing it a different way. So I think that that's the importance of, of having these conversations because we would go into a specific, right? An example. And, and it's really teaching each other how you want to be spoken to or being emotionally emotionally intelligent with one another. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember there was an argument my husband and I had when we were early, really newlyweds. And he didn't, I didn't speak about my uncle's schizophrenia then and how terrified I was of that. And I remember we were in an argument one day and he said, you know what? That's just crazy. Now, what I heard him say is, you are crazy. And I started to have a panic attack because I hadn't written my book, Fears on an Option, and I hadn't worked through these things. And then I told him, you know, and, and I freaked out. And I realized my reaction was not proportionate to the argument. And he was confused. And then I took a few moments and I went back to him. And I said, this is why it triggered me this way. And then he realized that and he never said those words to me again. And now if he did 25 years later, it wouldn't matter. But I think this is really about you being able to recognize how your response or your words affect one another and be able to change them just for the point of being feeling safe and vulnerable in the relationship. Yeah, I agree. And I, there's different, there's been times in the past where like one of us says something and then the other, just like you had as your example, takes it as a different way and you're triggered. I'm like, no, that's not what I was saying. And then it, causes an argument. So I think that's important. I should have a whole podcast on that because I'm sure that happens in so many relationships where the community, we men and women are what partner to partner communicate in different ways and understanding your communication. It's the emotional intelligence. It's really knowing each other's past before you were in the picture. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that Bob, you're probably really aware of, of Karina's past, but I don't know if it's if it's the other way, I think that if for whatever reason your reaction to his expression is affecting him a certain way, if I were you, I would probably create space. Like let's let's talk about whatever you want, you know, three times a week, or let's set specific time, make the relationship a priority. Because if for whatever reason Bobby's feeling like it's not, it's the lowest on the list in terms of all the other things that are happening, that's just not going to feel good. And it's not going to be remedied with a date night or a kiss or whatever, right? Mm. It's really creating space where you both can be seen and heard. And it goes back to the five languages of love. You know, what each of you needs in that way will be different. You just have to know what it is. Um, But I think this is a really powerful starting point. And I think it's amazing that you're expressing this and desiring it, right? Desiring to have a closer connection. Yeah, absolutely. We could go on forever on our personal (laughs) therapy session. But (laughs) 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 but, um, I think a lot of 
listeners will love that because everyone like on Instagram and social is like, you know, Karina and Bobby, couple goals, which I believe we are couple goals and you are a couple goals being able to be with a partner for that long. And, you know, and wanting I, to be. So. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But I want to go back to you mentioned the style of the styles of arguing. What? Yes, I do want to say one thing yep. to, to what you just said, um, because I have no doubt that you guys love each other. And, and of course we need that, but love is never enough, right? You can love somebody and not get along with them. You can love somebody and still feel lonely in a relationship. You can love somebody and still feel dissatisfied. And you can love somebody and have a desire for something more or different. And that's why it's so important to elevate the conversation of love because it's not just about love. It's not just about identifying your partner and creating a life with them. It's about continually feeling seen and heard. I mean, I, I can't underscore that enough. And, and when you are seeking to hear and see one another, then you are going to be more attentive, more nurturing. Um, I'm sure, you know, you mentioned you have five Pomeranians. They can't speak. I'm sure you're constantly looking to say, what are their needs? How can I attend to them? What do they desire, right? I think that we need to do more of that in relationships. Yeah, I agree with that. And even, you know, growing up, I probably was not seen or heard because I had an absent parent. So I'm okay with that. Whereas, mm. I think we're getting somewhere. I think I, I really do. Agree. I think you. I think you hit the nail on the head. I think you. You don't need it, but I think you also don't know how to give it because you never received it. So, and that's not. That's not a flaw. That's just like wow, you have this awareness. So you kind of have to force yourself to show up for Bobby in ways that are so foreign to you, just because mm-hmm. you just didn't have it. But you can learn it and you can grow it. And I think that. It's going to help you not only connect more to him, but you're going to have an even greater relationship with yourself because you're growing a part of yourself that hasn't been nurtured. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's part of, you talk about um, Mm self-parenting. Is that a part of it? Like, is that- It very much is. Yeah. So appropriate. Exactly. I feel like we're having all these aha moments. Um, Some, it's funny because I I came onto this idea- uh, like half a year ago, because I realized that I was neat in need of that, um, but in need of it from myself. And my friend, so I started talking about it and she's like, this sounds horrible. I'm such a strict parent. Like, I don't want to do that to myself. And I'm like, okay, well, that's a different conversation, but self-parenting normally, right? If it's the parent is um, healthy and available, it's really about being so in tuned with the needs of the person, right? The wants, the desires, being kind, to your body, to yourself, to your mind. And so when you start to look at life that way and you're able to give to yourself in that way, again, everything else will flow from there. All your relationships will be better. So, so yeah, I, I think that, yeah. How do you, how does one self-parent? Well, it's really about, um, the first is to change the voice in our heads mm-hmm. um, to make sure it's not judgmental. It's not overly critical. You give time for non-work. You give time to really enjoy and to be. Um, You don't overbook yourself. It's all the things that we would do for a child, you Mm -hmm. know, make sure they feel loved, give them the space to grow and, um, and to create connection. Any other questions, Bobby? Well, I have a lot of questions. That's okay. <laughs> We're going to have to make a private session with you. <laughs> we do. I do private sessions, actually. I would love that. I would love that. Yeah. Um, I spend a lot of my time with, with couples. Yeah. All right. I'll, I'll text you after this. <laughs> well, it was great to meet you and, and talk with you for sure. And hopefully well, we'll see you, you soon. Absolutely. And thank you for being so raw and vulnerable and Absolutely. honest. Absolutely. My yeah. favorite kind of people. Cool. <laughs> hey. Well, we'll see you in New York then. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> All right, bye bye. Um, bye, Bobby. We didn't. Uh, the one question I still the different um, was it the arguing styles that we were yes. talking about earlier, or the style to argue? Uh, I'd love to bring that up. So what? So back to the example of my husband. Once I realized that was ineffective, we decided that we came together and we decided on a style that worked for both of us, which was if um, if I was really upset or he was upset we could bring it up, but we wouldn't have to fix it or finish the conversation in that moment. We'd give each other the space and then we'd come back and we'd practice active listening. I think very often when couples are fighting, first of all, the ego is also there. So the ego is, I need to win at all costs. I can't be wrong. 
you know, I'll, mm-hmm. I'll suffer some great loss if I lose this, you know, and I think that it's a removal of ego and B creating that space where you're allowing the person to share, you're listening, but not just so you can then respond, right? You're actively listening to hear the wants and desires behind the emotions. And I think when two people come from that space, the conversation will naturally go in a very different direction. Yeah, I love that. And then you spoke about potential earlier, but I just want to make sure we have enough takeaways for everyone. Like, what are your top three tips for maximizing your potential? So I'd say when you wake up in the morning, appreciation for Mm -hmm. waking up, appreciation for having freedom that you can do pretty much whatever you want in your life. The second would be to write down your intentions. I'm a big advocate for journaling. Mm-hmm. Uh, often we're not aware of the thoughts in our heads or the feelings, and sometimes they're negative and they deter us and we're not even aware. So write down your intention of what you want the day to be. And honestly, the third is to make sure that within your day, there's an aspect of kindness and uh, sharing. And it's not just about you and your goals and your desires and your experience, but that you were actually have gone out of your way to make somebody else feel better because a big part of our potential is not just in what we are able to experience for ourselves, but how we're able to influence the world. I love that. And that's why we do the work that we do, you know, um, Monica, thank you. I'm going to put in the show notes for everyone listening, all of the books, where to find Monica, your website, rethinklife.today. Correct. Yes. Yes. Um, And thank you so much. um, Thank you. This has been a really inspiring conversation. I think we talked about so many different important topics. And again, I really appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability and Bobby's as well. Yeah. And then maybe we'll, after maybe we do some one on our one on twos with you, come back on the pod and talk about relationships. Yeah. Let's do some work maybe off, offline, off the air, and then we'll come back and we'll share it. I think that'd be really great. Yeah. I love that. All right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you or anyone you know needs help now, text HERO to 741-741 to connect with a crisis counselor. Our crisis text line is private and confidential. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like, subscribe, and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found. I love you, and I will see you next Wednesday. One, two, three, sing it. Here's to radical self-love, the type of love that will defeat anxiety, the type of love that defeats depression. This is the one life. This is the moment. This is the time to dig in, to be who you already are. The big silence. Breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. The big silence.